Today, we're starting off our very first episode with a bit of a party. My name's Allison Brown, and I'm going to be your digital docent. It's really great to meet you. I know you've been meaning to get to the gallery for a while, but life gets busy, especially nowadays, right? Holidays, saving the world one ballot at a time, work, you know, the usual. I promise though, we can definitely fit this in. Come on. The handy thing about the gallery, of course, is that it's pretty easy to fit into your schedule. You don't really have to travel anywhere, so the work comes to you. Of course, every work in the gallery has its own physical location. Our piece for today, for instance, is located at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C. But the beauty of the internet means that we can transplant literally anything, so all you have to do is decide to step inside. Well, and the fact that this is a listening medium doesn't hurt either. We're used to looking at art with our eyes, and although it's my job as docent to also share with you as much information as I can, which does also mean that I'll be sharing some pictures later on, the nice thing about our little visit is that we get to flex our inner eye to try to comprehend what exactly we're observing. Additionally, it means that the gallery gets to be whatever you want it to be. About the only thing I've really set up for us here is that the floors are hard, which, let's be honest, most floors in public places are hard. We could be walking on linoleum for all I care. Point being, if you want this place to be a palace of white halls, that's cool. If you're feeling the Louvre treatment and want some warm burgundy up there as well as some Baroque picture frames, go for it. The only thing I'm concerned about is that you enjoy yourself and that you're mentally prepared to see with all of your senses, not just the eyes rattling around in your head. Now, when I was thinking about how we wanted to curate the first exhibition for the gallery, I struggled a little. Do I want to just hit on the biggest names in art history? Do I want to delve more into my personal favorites, which meant going down into this very narrow rabbit hole of contemporary art history? Or did I want to do this huge survey from when we as humans were making cave paintings until right now? That's the big issue with art history, of course. You can never quite know where to start because there's so much. But The more I meditated on the opportunity that I was being given here, the more I realized that it might behoove me to push back against representation issues that we're seeing in institutions and allow us to see art through the lenses that we usually don't have an opportunity to have right now. Which brings us to our first piece in the exhibition. The Concert by Judith Leister. Now, you probably know this painting, even if you don't know its artist at first glance. For most painters, this is a common canvas size, roughly 24 inches by 34 and a half, which is translated to our metric folks as 61 centimeters by 87. It's in landscape mode, which is how most folks in the art world will describe images that are seen as horizontal instead of vertical, or longer than they are tall. Now, forgive me if you're well aware of this, but I want to try to talk to everyone in the exhibit hall, even those who are only able to experience art by listening to descriptions of it. 
Now, the background of this painting is kept exceptionally simple. Now, clues as to whether we're in a room or outside or anything, it's just a plain background and it's in the smoky, warm gray color. There's enough of a brownish hue that I would even wager that this has basically been made by a base painting of burnt sienna covered by a lot of glazes. But that's just a guess based off of whatever painting experience I personally have. Now, this neutral, kind of moody background allows our plucky trio at the center of this image to be front and center, both literally and figuratively. And a good thing too, because you can tell that they are really bringing the Shaw de vivre wherever they go. Now, our trio are musicians. We have a file player, a singer, and a loudest, in that order. Based off the garb, it's a good guess that these folks are at least part of Harlem's merchant class, if not in the upper echelons of high society. They're definitely in a realm of conspicuous consumption. Even if we were to judge by their collars alone, they are really here to display every inch of money that they have. The viol player and the singer, for instance, are both sporting some serious Elizabethan collars. There's enough lace pooling around their necks and flowing over their shoulders that you would think that there's probably multiple layers of this fabric kind of sitting here and gracing their necks. And meanwhile, the loudest over here decided to be a little more fashion forward and 1630s with his wide collar of linen and lace. Something that if you're familiar, you would probably see with contemporaries of most of the Dutch royal house right now, or even I would venture so far as to say most of the Jacobeans over in England. What's especially remarkable for me is how delicately Judith decided to treat the veil for the singer. It's pretty clear that the veil itself is made out of this gauzy, extremely light fabric, just based off of how there is this thin glaze of white that just barely covers her hair. And the lace that edges the veil is just barely shining in the image. It's just like these little near pinpricks of paint that manages to capture this extremely gorgeous lace that's being embroidered here. And I mean, that's just their swag, given that the clothing itself proper upon their body is equally made of sumptuous and rich materials. We have the vial player first, who's rocking some satin in his breeches, and it's pretty evident from his cuff buttons, which go up halfway up his arm, that they're of this fine metal. A brass, perhaps, and that's even at its lowest quote. I wouldn't be surprised if they were gold, frankly. Meanwhile, our singer's sleeves are this gilded brocade that brings some sparkle to this otherwise dark and kind of plain and modest black gown. I would probably guess based off of the lack of luminosity on the fabric itself and that there's kind of like this dull almost absorbent nature to it that she's probably wearing velvet something that's plush and deep and kind of absorbs light instead of reflects it. Most flashy of all of course is our loudest. He is in bright red from head to toe. Even the feather in his cap is dyed scarlet, which is just some gorgeous proof, frankly, that everyone in history has always done the absolute most, even in the 1630s. That is to say, our three jolly musicians here are all extra as hell, and they're not particularly afraid to show it. This especially goes for the expressions that they're wearing in this painting, which I have to confess 
are absolutely magnificent. You'll have to forgive me, but I really need to editorialize for a moment. But I really believe that the best thing about Judith Leister and her work is how she paints faces. The concert is a great example of how she captures what I can only describe as the face that's always tagged in Facebook albums that a friend of a friend decided to upload without your permission. Now, are the expressions in the concert great? Yes. Are they flattering? No way in hell, they definitely are not. Truth be told, I think it has something to do with the eyes and where they are. Now, Judith specifically doesn't have them looking at a certain point of space, which I argue is pretty normal for us, you know, as we're just hanging around. The viol player is really the only person who's actually making eye contact with the audience. Meanwhile, the singer has her eyes cast to heaven as she's belting out whatever she's singing. And the loudest, I have to say, has the best expression of all. He's rocking some side eyes, and they're directed specifically to the lower right. And he has this open mouth smirk that I can only really, you know, describe as something that you would wear if you're attempting to woo someone off screen and look really cool. It's, well, it's, <sighs> I gotta be real. It's a real fuckboy kind of face, which you would probably expect of a loudest at this particular joint of history. I mean, basically, it's the historical equivalent of saying, now here's Wonderwall, so why should I be shocked? Now, aside from the candid nature of expression in a world that is just beginning to break away from composed and solemn portraiture, there's also something that's just really charming and endearing about how Judith renders flesh and body and just the warmth and health of these people. Everyone's cheeks are ruddy and bright. Um, you can really tell that there's, you know, healthy, lack, no blemishes here. Everyone has a certain amount of joyful glow. You can tell that Judith painted all of these three with a certain amount of love and appreciation for the form of man, or in this case, woman, if we're talking about our singer. You don't usually get to say that paintings in this period are fun, but this painting is delightful in the most base sense of the definition of the word delight. Whenever I encounter this charmer of a painting, I'm always left with a smile on my face, even after I go off to see something else. It's, I mean, really, it's just a fun painting. There's no other word for it. Then again, the Netherlands were a blast in the 17th century, so I shouldn't really be so surprised. Roughly around when we date the concert, the Netherlands are cranking off. This is the height of the Dutch Republic, which is also the height of the Dutch Golden Age. The merchant class is booming, there's more disposable income than anyone can shake a stick at, and explorers are on their way to start the seats of the Dutch Empire across Africa and Indonesia and along the crest of South America. These musicians are wearing the fruits of the labor of the Dutch East India Company on their literal sleeves, and they are clearly enjoying it. Of course, with images like this, I always wonder if those seated were people that Judith knew. Not just because of the candor of their expressions or anything, or how honest and intimate that the scene appears to be, but also because Judith's life rocked. Her last name of Leicester is specifically taken from her parents' pub in Harlem, which, fun fact, if you translate their name into English, it means lodestar. Rad, right? Now, 
Judith grew up in one of the busiest towns in the Dutch Republic. And on top of that, it was inside of a pub, aka the social hub within any town worth its salt in Europe in the 17th century. Literally about the only other way that Judith's life would have been more fascinating and lively and open to all sorts of people in all sorts of times in their lives is pretty much if her parents would have run a coffee shop. Now, to boot, Judith was a child prodigy. She was name-dropped by Samuel Amsig when he described Harlem in 1628, and that was around when she was 19. And given that good old Sam was a pretty popular artist in his own right, knowing that Judith was even of mention when she was a teenager at this point is huge. Now, her family hopscotched around the area briefly in her early 20s, and this is around where she ended up gleaning a lot from a crew of famous Dutch artists in the area before she settled back down into Harlem and went under the tutelage of Franz Halls. The thing is, documentation about this relationship is pretty sketchy, but this is where art historians come in. They're able to discern this by looking at how Judith painted during this time, as well as how her work takes after the Passion of Halls et al. in this period. This is pretty common in the Renaissance across Europe, and it often means that there are a good deal of difficulties when it comes to properly attributing work. This happens as much in Italy as it does in the Netherlands, but what makes this particularly frustrating is that it means that a lot of work that could be Judas, or could be another student of Hall's, isn't particularly clear or easy to tell. So we don't really have an idea about how prolific Judith truly was. We can just kind of guess which works were her based off of the scholars that specialize in Judith and her work. Now, one thing that we do know about her, which is probably even why we know that she was such a big deal in the first place, was that she was the first woman to be admitted to the St. Luke's Guild within Harlem, which is the artist journeyman guild of that particular area. Not only is Judith the first woman to be a member that we can track, but she's also the first female member with a body of work that we're even able to trace. Through the guild, we're able to tell that Judith even had students. Students! Who knows if they were models or simply just happy acolytes. There was at least one record of a not-so-happy student who ended up defecting to Judith's former tutor halls. And the guild even has a record of Judith petitioning to get paid for her lost wages as a result. It's pretty rare to get such a record of a female artist who was able to hustle and get recognized the way that Judith did at this time. And once you look at her work, it's pretty easy to see why she was able to carve that path. Judith's talent with the brush is clear, and her knowledge of her talent bleeds through into the work that she makes, as well as the record that she leaves behind. If you have a moment after this podcast, I would suggest you look up Judith's self-portrait. It'll be included in the description notes. Her arms back, she's wearing her best clothes, she's giving the audience this pointed smiles with her eyes straight on you. All of this is telling you that she knows that she is the best at what she does. And the fact that her work abruptly stops when she's married makes it pretty bittersweet. I can only hope that a badass like Judith surrendered those brushes because she wanted to focus on her next masterpiece in the home instead of coercion by her partner, but we don't really know. Of course, I can sit here and talk to you about this work all day. I can tell you screeds about Judith, how much I admire her work, and how cool I find her to be. But the point of art is that we have a dialogue about it, and I would love nothing more than to hear about what you think about what we saw today. Check out all the research I accumulated in the show notes, and look at the images that I attached. From there, please feel free to reach out. 
you can email me at your.digital.docent at gmail.com. You can also reach out on Twitter at yourdigitaldocent or find me at Facebook by searching for the title. Now, mind you, with all of these, make sure that your has no vowels. That way you'll actually be able to pull it up. We also have an Instagram at the same handles that will have episode previews, so be sure to add us to your feed so you can get a sneak peek at who we'll be profiling for next episode. Now, I'd like to take this time specifically to thank DJ Quads for the usage of their song, It Just Makes Me Happy. Check them out on SoundCloud by searching for aka DJ Quads. Big thanks also goes to my research sources at Artsy, the National Gallery of Art, and Google Arts and Culture. And finally, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen. Meet in lobby, same time next week? Awesome. Can't wait to see you then.